This is Mitchell McLam, lead pastor of Sapona Road Church in Fayetteville, North Carolina. We're so excited you found our podcast. Our prayer is that you're blessed by today's message. If you would like more information about Sapona Road Church or would like to give to this ministry, please visit our website at saponaroadchurch.com. We hope you have a great day and enjoy today's message. Please look with me in Genesis. Um, I'm going to walk through this, and this is going to be a slow process, but we're going to chapter 6. We're continuing this discussion of in the beginning. I'm crazy enough to believe the Bible. Are you? Are you really, though? You start studying much of the Old Testament, and you start getting outside opinions, outside of scripture and outside of Christian theologians. And if you get into, into any kind of depth at all, you get into any kind of secular opinion whatsoever, you'll hear that the Old Testament's a bunch of fables, it's a bunch of fairy tales. But I'm crazy enough to believe the word of God to be true. I'm crazy enough to believe that if God sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for me, that he also could send a man to create a boat to save humanity, right? I'm crazy enough to believe that. So we're going to walk through Genesis chapter 6 just a little bit, and I want us to look at the story of Noah and his life. But to get to that point, we have to understand some things prior. Up to this point, Adam and Eve have been multiplying the earth. We talked about last Sunday their fall, their failure, and how uh, because of their failure, because of their sin, uh, darkness entered into the world really wasn't intentional but we continued that conversation into Wednesday night just a quick unashamedly plug if you've not been attending our basics uh, class on Wednesday night it's been awesome and I believe that you would benefit from that it's been great um, we're, we're facing the repercussions of Adam and Eve's sin and it's interesting we can get into detail and you can deal with it how you want to but uh, the way that the Bible reads it if you look and, and I'm just kind of throwing this as opinion just a hair little bit, men. But when Eve ate the fruit, it wasn't until she gave it to Adam and Adam ate the fruit that actually the fall took place. Because he is the, the pastoral ship, the minister, him as the leader, the spiritual leader. It actually was when he received that fruit, it was actually whenever he failed and he uh, had the moral failure that sin entered into the world. You take that for what it's worth, but you go read your Bible and it says that Eve ate of the fruit, then she gave it to Adam. She had time to give the fruit to Adam prior to the fall of mankind. It was not until Adam ate of the fruit and Adam had the failure that it says at that point they knew that they were naked and they were ashamed. But they had three kids. They had Cain, they had Abel, and they had Seth. Cain was the firstborn, then they had Abel. Cain and Abel had this dispute back and forth, and I believe wholeheartedly because of Adam's failure, because of Adam's mess up, because of Adam's sin, Cain himself was a man of sin. He was not a godly man. He had issues with the fact that when him and Abel offered up sacrifices to God, God received Abel's sacrifice but did not receive Cain's sacrifice. And, and God told Cain, if you go back and read it, he said, all you have to do is do right and I'll receive your sacrifice. And rather than listening to the word, the voice of God, 
Rather than listening to what God commanded, he actually said, Nah, I'm going to fix this myself, and I'm going to kill my brother so he can't offer any more sacrifice to you. You have to receive mine. So from the outset of Cain's life, we see this major struggle. We see this spiritual struggle. Then there's a third son born, Seth. Seth was born, and the Bible says that that Seth had a son, Enosh. And after Enosh was born, it was at that time that the people began to worship the Lord by name. You with me? You following along? They worship the Lord by name. So we've got, just from the direct descendants of Adam and Eve, we have two different groups of people. There's plenty of descendants that came later, but up to this point we have Cain and we have Seth. We have a people of God and Seth. We have a people that are worshiping God. And we have a people that have literally, from their descendant, Cain, have turned their back on God. And that kind of gets us to this place where the Bible says that as the people begin to multiply the earth, and I'm in Genesis now, chapter 6, verse 1. The people began to multiply the earth. Daughters were born to them. And the sons of God saw beautiful women, and they took any that they wanted as their wives. That's interesting. I love my one wife. I couldn't imagine taking any that I wanted as my wives. My awesome sister-in-law is here today, and she knows that she is wife number two. But if it was any more than just a distant relationship, I don't know that I could handle it. The Lord said, my spirit will not put up with humans for such a long time for their only mortal flesh. In the future, their normal lifespan will be no more than 120 years. If it hadn't have been for their failure, if it hadn't have been for their mess-ups, you and I might have 900 years plus to get something accomplished in life. But because of what they became, because of what they were, God said, because of this, my spirit will not dwell in man more than 120 years. Now, we see people live longer than 120 years after this point. It's not actually until Moses that uh, he dies at 120 years old. People live a little bit longer, but lifespan is drastically shortened. Well, I, I thought about this, we pondered it a little bit, and I asked the Lord, explain this to me just a little bit. And I believe that wholeheartedly up to this point, Moses was the first man that could not live on his own in the flesh past 120 years. If you've been in our basics class, you realize that from the very beginning of salvation, God took the spirit of man, he, he crushed that spirit, demolished it, and he replanted his spirit inside of us. You with me? And from that point, from the spirit, our mind and our body are then transformed. It works from the inside out. And so here is God saying, my spirit will not dwell with man for more than 120 years. That mind and that body can still exist, but God's spirit is leaving that person after 120 years. Moses was the first person that we saw that died at 120 years, and therefore his flesh could not go on without the spirit of God. Some people believe the sons of God here in verse 2 to be angels, but it really doesn't make sense because that contradicts what the New Testament teaches. So it's much more likely that the sons of God were the people of Seth. In the next portion of Scripture, it says in verse 4, In those days, for some time after, giant Nephilites lived on earth. For wherever the sons of God had intercourse with women, they gave birth to children who became heroes and famous warriors of ancient times. The women there is expanded upon a little bit more in other translations. And it says, when the sons of God had relations with the women of man, then there was a giant created, and they became ancient warriors, and they were famous in the time. So we see, we can reason it to get to a point where God's chosen people, the people of Seth, 
have now messed up and they see all these beautiful women wandering the earth and they want to take any of them that they want regardless of their belief system, regardless of moral character. And now the men of God are taking women of man. They're taking the women from the descendants of Cain. And when they marry and when they have children, the children is a giant. It's not necessarily a good thing, though, that they become warriors and they become famous of the ancient times. They were famous in the land, but they were not famous in the sight of God. How many people are sought after their, their desire is to be famous in the eyes of man, but in reality, they are absolutely lost when God goes looking? And here are these people, the descendants of this corruption, the descendants of the people of Seth, the people of God, the chosen group of people, and the people of Cain are coming together, and they're famous. They're known for what? Their, their size. They're, known for their, they're famous for their posture, for their ability to fight. But yet, in the eyes of God, they're nobody. How do I know that? Well, verse 5 goes on to tell us, The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth. He saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. Therefore, just because they were famous and just because they were warriors, their own thought life was examined by God and he said consistently, over and over, it was evil. I told you, we talked about Wednesday night, that, that just because temptation enters into your mind doesn't mean that sin has entered into your life. To be tempted is not a sin. Jesus was tempted. Jesus did not sin. Therefore, when you're tempted, it does not mean that you have accepted sin into your life. But there is a thought process. And when temptation rolls into the back of our mind, and we hear the roaring line that we talked about Wednesday night, roaring at us and barking at us to fall into a temptation, when our mind begins to ponder on that and we let that stir up and we let that get messed up, it was literally the very thoughts of these people that caused the destruction of earth. That's deep. We don't understand the power of the thoughts. We discuss the power of words. We know that God literally spoke the world into existence with the power of his word. We, we receive life, but yet it was the power of their thoughts that were consistently and totally evil that caused God to bring destruction. So the Lord was sorry that he had ever made them and he put them on the earth. It broke his heart. We see a God of compassion. So many people don't want to believe that God is a compassionate God. But from the very beginning of creation, when the very first onset of people came into the world and they messed up, it broke his heart that they messed up. That does not whatsoever define a nature of God to me that wants to send people to hell. Any misconception that God wants to send anybody to hell is a lie. And I can point you back to creation, back to the very beginning of Genesis where they messed up. He did not want to do what he was about to have to do. It broke his heart that they were consumed with evil. How often does it break our heart? The Lord said, I'll wipe this human race I've created from the face of the earth. And yes, I'll destroy every living thing, all the people, the large animals, small animals that scurry along the ground, even the birds of the sky. I'm sorry I ever made them. Why he decided to bring snakes back, I don't understand. But then there's verse 8. Noah found favor with the Lord. Noah found favor with the Lord. I thought about that, and I wondered how it was really that in the middle of the corruption, in the middle of this destruction, 
And, and the point that the people there, that they're thinking consistently and totally, that means that there is no good thought entering through their mind. You agree? Consistently and totally would mean constantly and all the time there's nothing other than evil processing through their mind. How does a man live among that evil that still finds favor with God? How is it possible that we put ourselves in a situation where, where we're consumed by evil, we're consumed in a culture, we're consumed in a workplace, we're consumed in a family, I don't care where it's at, we're consumed by destruction all around us, yet still there's one man that happened to find favor with God. I wanted to understand, and I, I'm simple-minded, you understand that, you've learned that already. And in verse 9, the Bible says this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on earth at the time. And it says, and he walked in close fellowship with God. The only logical conclusion that I can come up to, the only thing that I see in the word whatsoever, we learn later that Noah really messed up. He was not a perfect man. In fact, he got drunk and really caused some more destruction in his own life. He wasn't perfect. But the way that he found favor with God in the midst of everything around him, everywhere he looked, people were nothing but mess-ups. People were broken and busted up. Evil completely taken over. Yet he found favor with God. And all that I can figure out is because he walked in fellowship with the Lord. And it made me really kind of stop for a minute and ponder if God's looking and in the midst of utter chaos, in the midst of this culture that we live, the midst of the evil that we live amongst, is he going to look around and find somebody that walks in close fellowship with him? One man saved humanity. Do you realize that? His sons and their daughters, or his sons and, and their wives were just the added bonus God said, you get to maintain your family, but we don't have a clue that they were righteous in the sight of God. The Bible says Noah found favor. And the only thing we know is he was a righteous man and that he walked in close fellowship with the Lord. And I have to assume because of Noah's future, what's coming up to be, and we see his fall, just like if you walk back through of all of history. Every, you look at David, who, who had the utter uh, scandalous fall that he had. You look at, at all these other people, Jonah, who, who we read a whole book that's from him, but yet he himself disobeyed God and ran. All of these people throughout history were mess-ups. Peter, who the church was founded on, lied, straight up denied Jesus himself. I'm thankful for the fact that God is a God of grace and all I know about Noah is he walked in fellowship with the Lord. That tells me that my walking in fellowship with God, my walking in a relationship, my being on his side and him being on my side, just a day-to-day -day relationship covers a whole lot of junk in my life. The man's not perfect. He really messes up later. He didn't just all of a sudden take a moral failure. I, I, he's a man. But I recognize that he walked in fellowship with the Lord. Now God saw in verse 11, the earth had become corrupt and was filled with the violence. God observed all his corruption, all this corruption in the world, for everyone on earth was corrupt. So God said to Noah, 
I've decided to destroy all people, all living creatures, for they filled the earth with violence. Yes, I'll wipe them all out along with the earth. You take the word of God however you want to take it. When I just read that, it says that everyone on earth was corrupt. That means even Noah that was righteous in the sight of God, the one that walked in fellowship, he still had a corrupt nature about him, right? Genesis 6.14 says, this is where the instructions come in. It says, build a large boat. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. You would know it as an ark from cypress wood or gopher wood and waterproof it with tar inside and out. Then construct the decks and stalls throughout its interior. Make the boat 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. Leave an 18-inch opening but below the roof all the way around the boat. Put the door on the side. Build all three decks inside the boat, lower, middle, and upper. Do you realize there had never been anything built like this before? 450 feet long. That is a football field and a half. 75 feet wide, which is almost half of the football field. And here God has given specific instructions on what Noah is about to accomplish. I don't really know as a righteous man or not a righteous man that I could have handled that overwhelming task. Hey Noah, a boy, I'm going to wipe out all of earth and all creation, everything that's living, that's breathing, uh, and it's up to you. To build this ginormous thing in which you've never seen one before in order to save everything that's living and breathing on earth now. You think you got pressures of life? Could you imagine? I love that God give the detailed instructions. He give it so clear to put an 18-inch opening. Why 18? Why not 19? Why not 17? It doesn't matter. The point is God gave the detail. So if God cared enough to to give down to the very inch of the opening that was going to be on this boat, an 18-inch opening below the roof all the way around the boat, why does he not care about the very details of our life? It's unreal to me the detail that Noah received. I don't know how he did it. But he goes to work. Verse 17 said, look, I'm about to cover the earth with a flood that will destroy every living thing that breathes. Everything on earth will die. But I will confirm my covenant with you. So enter the boat, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring a pair of every kind of animal, male and female, into the boat with you to keep them alive during the flood. Pairs of every kind of animal, every kind of bird, every kind of animal, every kind of small animal that scurries on the ground. They will come to you to be kept alive. Pay attention. Because at the beginning of verse 19, he said, bring a pair of every kind of animal. That is an overwhelmingly impossible task. I told you I had these random revelations in the shower. And this morning I was in the shower and I thought, how did the eastern diamondback rattlesnake make it all the way over to where Noah was in order to get on the boat and live? How long did it take the eastern diamondback rattlesnake to make it to the boat? I told you I'm crazy enough to believe the Bible. And we can have a discussion about evolution, and we can believe that maybe he only took two snakes on the the ark, and out of those two snakes they evolved. I don't believe that. 
you've got some science to back it up, I'll listen to you. But I believe that God is detailed enough that long before Noah ever started building the ark, long before he ever even knew that there was a task on his life, there was a purpose to accomplish, God had already sent that doggone eastern diamondback rattlesnake on a journey to make it across to the other side of the world so he could get on the boat and live. And that's a mind-blowing thought. Maybe your mind is much more detailed and much more complicated than mine. But the fact that God has control of all creation in a way, he has control of every circumstance around us in a way, that he said, hey, Noah, you got to bring all these animals on the boat to you. But at the bottom of verse 20, it says, I will send. They're going to come. I'm sending all these animals to get on the boat with you. The impossible task took a twist, and God said, actually, you can't do this on your own, so I'm actually going to send them to you. But yet we get caught up in the small little details of life and don't understand how this is going to happen or don't understand how that's going to happen. Why am I dealing with this? Why am I dealing with that? When God said, sure, make it take place. But what you don't realize is long before I ever even thought about bringing you into the world, everything was already in place to make that take place for your life. A white-tailed deer had already somehow or another begun the journey swimming across the ocean long before Noah ever even showed up to build an ark. My soul and my mind has to see that. That God had to have had a purpose. He had to have had a plan from way long ago, understanding this is what's going to happen. Those dumb giants are going to exist. They're going to want to be selfish. They're going to want to be with themselves. The people of God are going to think totally evil and corrupt. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start that doggone snake on a long journey to make it to get on the ark so that it can live. Understanding how the details of our life come together is a powerful thing. And he says, and be sure to take on board enough food for your family and all the animals. As if it's not enough, we have to show up and get on the boat. Make sure you get your food together. How did... I'm amazed how Scripture just works. In a minute, we'll figure out that it was 12 and a half months that went by from the time the flood started to the time that Noah realized the ground was dry. Twelve and a half months. And God said, take enough food on board for you and your family and all the animals. How did Noah even know how much food to take? Because he said, hey, it's going to rain, it's going to flood 40 days and 40 nights. Well, that's pretty simple. I get enough food for 40 days and 40 nights. Noah's never seen rain. Up to this point, the land was beautiful and water would just bubble up out of the earth and water everything that needed to be watered. And here is something going to fall from the sky that's never even been seen before. He said, but you need to take enough food, not only to feed you, but feed those animals that I've sent to get on the boat with you. What if Noah had only showed up with enough to feed for 40 days and 40 nights? What if Noah had not been willing to prepare enough to be ready for anything God sent his way? Twelve and a half months. I don't like to ride in the car for more than about 45 minutes to an hour. Now I get that boat was way, way, way bigger than my car. But the point is the confinement. Twelve and a half months. Yet Noah had enough food to feed 
What's interesting is when they get off the boat later, we'll see in a minute, he had enough to even sacrifice at an altar and worship the Lord. Because whenever we begin to prepare, and when we're obedient to God, there's always enough. Not only is there enough to sustain us, but there was enough at the end of the journey when they got off the boat 12 and a half months later. Can you imagine the haircuts they needed by then? When they got off the boat 12 and a half months later, there was enough to send up worship to the Lord. And he heard, he smelled the sweet aroma of their praise. He smelled the sweet aroma of the sacrifice and he said, that's good. When I give God everything that I am, there's always enough. For me to be satisfied, and then there's an always left enough left over for me to give back to worship Him. And we move into chapter seven. First, you need to understand in verse twenty-two of chapter six. I love that, and I saw it earlier that it's repeated twice. It says, "And Noah did everything exactly as God had commanded him." That means that Noah didn't take no shortcuts and build that boat four hundred and 49 feet. That means that he didn't run out of nails and decide that he was going to make that open in 17 inches instead of 18 inches. There were no shortcuts. Yeah. How often, though, do we take the shortcuts? Well, the ark's going to be built. The boat's going to be built. What's it matter if I don't make it quite 450 foot long? Instead, I bump it back to 449. And I really don't like 75 foot wide because it doesn't fit quite into my, that board, it would have to be cut a little bit different. So what instead what I'm going to do is I'm going to build it uh, 75 foot and 11 and a half inches. God won't care. It's just a half an inch. When God cares enough to give us details about our life, he expects them to be followed out in obedience. What if Noah had taken the shortcuts? Said he did everything as God commanded him. We move into chapter 7. When everything was ready, God is not going to move until you're ready for him to move. God is not going to move in any situation in your life. He's not going to move in this church. He's not going to move this church. I had no intention of saying that until we're ready for that. Because it said, when everything was ready, the Lord said to Noah, go into the boat with all your family. For among all the people of earth, I can see that you alone are righteous. Can you imagine what that was like for Noah? To know that he's the only righteous man on earth. He's spent this huge long time of his life, years, building this boat that's supposed to float in a place. He's building it on dry ground, right? You can't build a boat on the water. He had to build the boat on dry ground. So just the... Okay, so people, just kind of follow me. Maybe you can stick in my mind just a second. How is the boat going to make it from dry ground to the water? They've never seen rain. 
So here's Noah who appears to be out of his mind, building a boat that's not going to run up and down the Euphrates River. It doesn't make any sense for what he's done. What do you mean God's going to flood the earth? What do you mean rain's coming? Can you imagine what he dealt with? I'd imagine even his sons, hopefully they were obedient, hopefully they helped him drive some nails, but I, I would have to think they'd have said, Dad, you're crazy. You really think that there's enough water about to show up that we need a 45-foot-tall boat to keep us alive? But it all had to start somewhere. And the whole thought for me today is nothing that I've told you thus far. For me, when I thought about this several weeks back, this is what I tried to preach last week. It all had to start with a vision. Noah had no idea what God was about to do. He's never seen a boat this big. He's never experienced a boat. He's, he's never seen rain. So God, you've given me details. You've told me that it needs to be 450 foot long, 75 foot wide, 45 feet high, and even down to the 18 inch opening at the roof. Put in three levels. How do you keep going? Some of y'all are tired of doing what you're doing already. You feel like you've been doing the same thing over and over. I am not a person of repetition. It drives me nuts to sit down for more than about 30 minutes and do the same thing. We stuff some animal crackers in some bags at Christmas time to take to some of the schools to give to some of our teachers and our staff. And I sat at that table for 45 minutes putting animal crackers in the bags, and it drove me crazy. I can't stand to stuff candy and Easter eggs. It drives me nuts. How did Noah wake up every morning for years with a drive to get up and build a boat to save humanity? The only way he did it was he had a vision. The only way he accomplished that was vision. He could see it. He had to have seen it. How did he know what shape to make it? We got all these mock-ups of what the, the ark looked like. We have all these designs. We ain't got a stinking clue. He didn't either until he visualized it. And he could see what it was going to be like. I believe he, somehow or another, God said, bring those animals in with you, but I'm going to send them to you somehow. I believe he saw the day that God said, you know what, rain's about to start coming. I believe he could see the animals walking in the boat before he ever drove the first nail. Somehow he understood. I don't know why he had enough food to last him 12 and a half months. It was supposed to be 40 days and 40 nights. But he had to have some way or another understood this vision is going to take a long time to come to pass. It's not going to be overnight. It's not going to be quick. But all I know is I've got to maintain the vision, maintain the purpose. This is my goal. This is where I'm going. This is where I've got to get to. How do I do it? He drove one nail at a time. All the ridicule, all the people thinking he's crazy. He was crazy. 
He had to have been. If I told you to go home and start building a boat, you'd look at me like I've lost my mind. Hopefully, if God told you, you might wouldn't look at him quite the same way, but chances are there's enough doubt in our heart we would. But he had a vision. Verse 5 of chapter 7. First of all, if you ever get asked how many animals, how many of each animal Noah took on the ark, two is a lie. We were always taught wrong in children's church and Sunday school. I was an adult before I understood how I had been misled my whole life. It was not a pair of animals that went on the ark. The Bible says in chapter 7, verse 2, Take with you seven pairs, male and female, of each animal I have approved for eating and for sacrifice. God knew what they would need. He knew how long they'd be on the boat. Take one pair of each of the others. Also take seven pairs of every kind of bird. There must be male and female in each pair to ensure that all life will survive on earth after the flood. Female and male must be present for life to survive. He said, seven days from now I'll make the rains pour down on the earth and it'll rain for 40 days and 40 nights until I've wiped from the earth all living things I've created. Verse 5 said, Noah did everything as the Lord commanded him. We jump down to verse 11. When Noah was 600 years old on the 17th day of the second month, all underground waters erupted from the earth and rain fell in mighty torrents from the sky. And the rain continued to fall for 40 days and 40 nights. Verse 15, it says, two by two, they came into the boat representing every living thing that breathes a male and female of each kind entered just as God had commanded Noah. But the Lord closed the door behind them. He's prepared for this moment. He's prepared for this time. And out of nowhere, the animals start rolling in. Nowhere do I see Noah was attacked. Nowhere do I see that the tiger and the lion fought. But I do see that a totally different way of destruction came. It rained. It was a whole new kind of storm. Something they had never witnessed before. Something that came very many times after. Don't you get tired of seeing the rain sometimes? And all I can get to the place, all I can do is get to the place where I understand that that rain represented something new. For Noah and his family, all of creation. God could have just sprung up water from the earth. It could have been enough to wipe them out. But God sent a whole new kind 
of storm. With new obedience comes new trial. When Noah agreed, the Bible said twice that Noah did everything God commanded him to do. He was prepared for the storm. He knew it was coming. I'm mind blown by the fact that God had orchestrated every part of creation to make that day take place. When everything was ready, it happened. What if Noah had a quit halfway through? God had put creation in motion. He had said to that sorry eastern diamondback rattlesnake, you need to take off for a cross-world trip because you're going for a boat ride. What if they'd have showed up? What if the giraffe had have showed up and the boat wasn't in place? Noah had to have a vision, and the vision had to be seen through. If not, we wouldn't be here. God had enough faith in Noah to give him a vision. God had enough confidence in Noah. Noah is nobody special. It just happens to be he was the one walking in fellowship with the Lord. That tells me that you and I, if we ask, if we seek the Lord, if we're walking in a relationship with him, a close fellowship with him, there's a purpose. There's a purpose for your life. There's a purpose for my life. Together, as the body of Christ, there's a purpose. For this body together of believers, there's a purpose. What happens if we don't grab the vision and think crazy enough to start driving nails? You want to get out of debt? Some way, somehow, some shape or form, there has to be a vision of what it looks like for us to do that. What does life look like when we achieve that? Or a relationship that's totally different with our kids? What does it look like? How does that take place? How does it happen? We want to own a house? What does it look like? We want to be healthy? What does it look like? Somehow, some way, God will give very specific instructions. When he does, we don't take shortcuts. We don't cut corners. We grab the vision. And we work one day at a time toward that goal when we get there when they got on a boat I mean God's grace is evident God created humanity humanity messed up and God said I'm heartbroken I'm going to give you a way out 
For me, that boat represents the loving grace of Jesus Christ. Somebody had to put in the time. Somebody had to put in the effort. Noah had to work his rear end off to make the ark take place. But it's the saving grace of God represented to all creation, not just to mankind, to everybody. To that sorry eastern diamondback rattlesnake that I've decided to pick on today. But without a vision, we perish. If life is mundane, it's boring, and it's repetitive for you, you're not serving the same God with the same type of vision that I am. God needs to renew a passion inside of us. I taught a a session yesterday in our state campground. The session was all about transitioning in ministry. I was able to present my testimony and give that journey that you've heard. And one thing that I brought out was transition is always preceded by preparation. Always, in any area of life, specifically in ministry, every pastor you've ever had, every pastor that ever left you, I'm talking about here at home because it's what you know, had preparation in their heart prior to coming here and prior to ever leaving because it's the way it works. God twists something, he turns something, he begins to stir something inside of of, of a person that's seeking out the will of God and he begins to, to start changing hearts and changing minds to a point that it prepares for the transition. Every transition in life, there's preparation. If you've had a baby, you prepared. If you got married, you prepared. If you wanted to buy a car, you prepared. Doesn't matter what it is in life, preparation always Proceeds transition. So the thought came for me yesterday. One of the things that I said is that when we make transition, anytime any type of transition takes place, if we've lost our passion and our drive, if we've lost our vision, we pray a prayer. God, passionately restore that within me or make my steps known unmistakably. If I've lost my drive, if I've lost my vision, I've lost my passion. If your life is mundane and it's boring, God, restore something within me. Give me a new purpose. Restore passion inside of me or make my steps unmistakably ordered so that I have to see them without a shadow of a doubt. That applies to every area of our life. I've prayed that prayer in ministry, in a ministry role, and, and been tired and burned out and wondered what, Lord, I'm done, I'm tired, I don't even understand what I'm doing, and make that prayer, pray, pray that prayer, and I walk into the same doors of the same church looking in the face of the same people and have a totally different perspective of those people when I walk in the next time. God can turn your heart on people that have cut you down, people that have burnt you, people that have hurt you, people that are against you. He'll give you a totally different light. You'll see those people through a totally different lens when we pray that prayer. 
There's an ark waiting to be built by you to accomplish your purpose in life. But you better get a vision and a passion to do it. All of creation has already been set in place. All of creation's already been moving. Everything that's going to take place, all of the circumstances surrounding that, God's already set in order. Somebody's already waiting on you to make it the three weeks from now to get to the place that you're supposed to be. God's already orchestrated that relationship, that connection that's supposed to take place. He's waiting on you to make it through time to get there three weeks from now to have a relationship with that person. But it starts with a vision. Purpose, a passion. Father, I love you. God, I believe we heard your heart today. God, there's some of us in our life standing in this room that need a renewed vision. We need clarity, we need direction, we need purpose, we need passion. Father, I pray that that be restored today. I pray that you allow us to take a moment to step back and realize we've lost our way. Somewhere along the line, we've we've quit waking up every day to a new adventure with you, and rather we've got into the, the mundane. We've got into repetitiveness. We do the same thing every day the same way, talk to the same people. We're missing the adventure of your greatness. We miss the adventure of your creativity, God, the way that you want to show us new things, the way you want to teach us new things. Father, we need renewed vision. Father, I pray for vision, God, the ones that recognize they need you today. Father, I pray in Jesus' name, God, that you would restore that in them, that you give them a new drive, a new passion, Father. Give us a drive and a passion, Father, for our our walk with you, Lord. Our journey with you, Father, as a body of believers in this house, Father, you've put us here for a reason, for a purpose. God, give us a vision. Give us a drive. Restore a passion inside of us. Make it known, Lord. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray blessings over your people today, God. I pray that you would bless us and keep us, bring us back again, Lord. I pray for vision, renewed vision, Father, a new passion, a new drive over over your people. I thank you, Father, for what you've done here today, and we give it to you in Jesus' name.